0: This is the fifth installment of Stephanie Meyer Ruined My Life. If you have been studying the Twilight Saga with me for the past four weeks, you already know everything that you need to know for this episode. If you have not listened to the preceding episodes of this podcast, please go back and listen to them. It is a serial podcast. It helps you out a lot if you listen to them in order, but especially this week, I want you to kind of have a base layer understanding of these characters that I've already discussed because a lot of ideas come together and come to a head in this episode. This book. This book is a romance novel, but it's not erotica. I was nine years old when the first one came out, and I believe I was 11 or 12 when I actually read it. The adults in my life, teachers, parents, parents of my friends, all wanted to know, is there sex in that book? And the short answer is no, not really. Bella and Edward have sex once, and in the books, it's not really covered. And also, by the time it happens, I was like 14, and I'd already read the other books, so people had stopped asking. Over the ages since 2005, plenty of parents believed they were doing everything they could by simply asking, is there sex in that book? This week, I'm giving you a list of other relevant questions that could have saved Stephanie Meyer from ruining my life. Categorically, The Twilight series is a romance series first and a fantasy series second. It's not erotica, like I just said, which made it more accessible to children when it came out. But it checks a lot of other boxes for other kinds of romance. Bella and Edward are so deeply in love with each other that the idea of Team Jacob almost seems pointless to anyone who's paying attention. You know the whole time. The tender moments shared between the loving couple are enough to keep the reader on board with Team Edward. That's really what the whole entire series is about. There's suspense. When I reread The Twilight Saga, I want to throw the book across the room with almost every page I turn. And yet here I am because I need to understand it. And I love what a quick read it is. You can read one of those books in one sitting if you're dehydrated and don't get up to use the restroom. Some people binge The Office for the eighth time. Some people fixate on Twilight. We all have our things. It's all right. I appreciate that parents can't check every book. There's not a written guideline for every book on how appropriate it actually is. And there's no way to make sure something has age-appropriate content. And when something's marketed as a young adult novel, it's going to end up in the hands of kids. That's how it works. And I guess like that's why parents just have to choose which questions are important to them. I have friends who weren't allowed to read Harry Potter because it contained witchcraft. And like, I personally wasn't allowed to watch war movies because it contained extensive gore. When you're parenting, you've got your priorities. You're going to ask, you're going to buy certain video games for your kids, let them watch certain television, and you're going to let them read certain books. When it comes to a kid reading a romance novel, Naturally, the first concern is the possibility of age inappropriate sex scenes. That's not a problem in the Twilight Saga because every character in the story is sort of unofficially Mormon to match Stephanie Meyer's official Mormonism. I didn't totally want to bring up that Stephanie Meyer's a Mormon. That's why I haven't brought it up until the fifth episode. But a lot of people know she's a Mormon at this point in 2021. So it, it is worth mentioning, although the books themselves don't actually give it away. Edward is a walking piece of history, born even before Elvis was moving his hips around. And it's no surprise that he's a prude, given his advanced age. And Bella plays along in huge part because of the natural tension created between a vampire and a human lover. They cannot move too fast sexually in their physical relationship or she'll die. She would need to be a vampire, which can really only happen after marriage in order to have safe sex with Edward. That's what I'm calling unofficial Mormonism. Vampires get married all the time. It's part of their thing. The prudishness of a vampire man can be excused away by his physical impulses. But there is sex eventually. By the point anyone's reading the last book, they've already read the first three. Almost guaranteed. They've seen some movies. Like I said at the beginning, I, I was 14 instead of 10 and by the time I'm reading the last book. By then I had entered puberty, which wouldn't have been the case if there had been explicit sex in the first book. But regardless, the one time they do have sex, there's absolutely no mention of the act. They're happily holding each other after their wedding ceremony. And then fast forward to Bella's waking up the next day to see Edward angrily wondering how injured she is from the night before. The bed is broken. Everything is destroyed and Bella is covered in bruises. She's okay with it, but that doesn't matter too much to Edward because he decides then and there that they won't do it again. I like to think this was the exact moment that the author of Fifty Shades of Grey picked up a laptop and got to work writing the part of the story that some of the adult audience wanted. Because there's a lot going on there that is not addressed in the Twilight story, which is fine, but um, just like saturated with potential other story. I am convinced this is the moment when that author was like, all right, what happened to the bed? Why is it broken? The scene in Breaking down the movie, was tasteful and romantic. Perfect for screen capping and putting on Tumblr, just as you might expect from a series that's shy about talking about actual sex while alluding to it for over a thousand pages. Edward is sexy. Bella fears she's not sexy enough. And I, like I mentioned in the last episode, theaters of people screamed when Jacob took his shirt off. It kind of reminds me of when horror movies choose not to show the monster to the audience because it like makes a better movie to let them imagine the monster than ruin the whole thing with bad CGI. Sex is the monster in, the, in this analogy. They had to let the audience believe something would happen and never ever show it because if they did, it could be a letdown. The whole story is riddled with understandings of sex and heterosexual relationship roles. And when the couple consummates their marriage, they're simply putting a candle in a cake that had already been like baked, frosted and sold and like unwrapped from the box, put on the table. You know, they're just finally getting ready to blow the candles out. You can answer the question, is that book erotica with a firm no? But I hope we all learned from the 15 years since the Twilight Saga began that there should be some follow-up questions. What does the book say about consent, control, guilt? What does it say about helplessness, power imbalance, and chaos? So the second question, after Is There Sex, could be about consent. Are boundaries respected in that book? I'm from Arizona, so there's notoriously bad sex education. Some sex education content is pushed online at this point. One thing that Planned Parenthood pushes is an acronym about consent. The acronym is FRIES. It is a little bit weird, but Fry's is about consent. Consent is F, freely given, R, reversible, I, informed, E, enthusiastic, and S, specific. As far as consent is concerned, Bella is nothing but consenting for the majority of the saga. She spends a good deal of her time begging Edward to turn her into a vampire so that she can be with him forever. And she doesn't say because I want to have sex, but it very much rings that bell of religious kids marrying young with the undertone of you can't have sex till you're married. She knew what she wanted, and she was asked to seriously consider what she was doing by other people than edward like jacob and alice and the one time they had sex she consented and also definitely consented to turning into a vampire things she did not consent to include edward removing every photo of himself from her bedroom edward reading the minds of her friends to see what she looked like in gym class edward following her around when she doesn't even know if he knows her name uh she didn't consent to going to the prom and he didn't even ask permission to take her to the prom he just showed up and did it. He thinks he knows so much about what she wants and what she needs. He thinks he knows what she needs better than she does, and that is frustrating, and it does throw how much does Edward respect consent into the question. Side note, I literally cried watching Vampire Diaries the other day um, because there was actual human decency coming off the vampire in that show. The season, one couple in that show are Elena the human and Stefan the vampire. And at some point, Stefan does like a very Edward Cullen thing and says he has to go because Elena's life would be better without him. He feels guilty that she keeps witnessing murders and keeping secrets to him and decides the whole thing will be better if he leaves. A very common contemporary vampire plot line. He doesn't say the same stupid stuff Edwards does or like, claim that it'll be like he never existed it pretty obviously lacks the manipulation that edward does when he decides to leave he knows that he's already done harm and wants to redeem himself by going away and not continuing to do harm he's willing to own the harm that he's done and also move on to keep elena safe but elena stops him and says it's fine if he chooses for himself to go but she wants him to stay she wants him to know that if he leaves that's a choice he's making for himself and not for her because if Because she's made her preference known and it won't be ignored. She wants him to stay. And so if he leaves, that's on him. That's like, she wants him to stay. End of story. At this point, he's like, oh my god, thank you. I didn't want to go away. And then they have this romantic embrace that leads to sex. And afterwards, while they're still sort of hanging out in Stefan's bed, he offers her water. Like, asks her if she wants water. And I cried. I cried because I've been reading about Edward and Bella for weeks, actually months. I realized that it's been since October and it is now almost February. And nothing is ever that simple with them. Edward makes it about him 10 out of 10 times, but Stefan asked her what her need was, water, and then met her need by getting her a glass. Like It is that simple. It doesn't have to be a whole thing. He didn't ostracize her for being a human in need of water or make it about his own uncontrollable lust or apologize that he wasn't already putting water in her throat. Like, Oh my gosh, she just got her a glass of water. I was so excited. Oh, oh my gosh, it was the relief I needed after reading about Twilight for so long. Bella is like in a completely different universe from Elena of Vampire Diaries. When Bella says she's not hungry, Edward ignores that and tells her to eat every time. The quote from Twilight is literally, you eat, I'll talk. I about threw up in my book when I realized that in Life and Death, Edith asks Bo, are you going to eat anything else? And Bo says, no, I'm good. All the slack I got Edward and Stephanie Meyer regarding Edward's vampiric social skills and Edith is timid the way Bella is rather than forceful the way Edward is. It's not a vampire thing. It's not. He's being, he he commands Bella around constantly. He tells her where to step and what to feel. And worse than the day-to-day, like, get-in-the-car-or-go-to-sleep crap that Edward does, he thinks he gets to decide what happens to Bella once their one time of sex turns into a pregnancy bella wants to keep the baby and edward basically tells her she can't by the way no ugly bloodsucker or anyone else is allowed to say what a person is going to do with their body and their pregnancy we don't know if stephanie meyer's pro-choice it doesn't really matter ultimately in this story bella gets what bella wants regardless of what stephanie meyer thinks me and meyer have disagreed before just no If you have a pregnancy that you don't want or cannot handle, that is your choice what to do from there. The truly iconic, emotionally abusive relationship between Edward and Bella only works when the vampire's a man, and that disappoints me greatly. The relationship disappoints me anyway, but once you realize that Stephanie Meyer's doing a boys-will-be-boys thing in regards to serious emotional abuse, it gets pretty twisted. And, not to victim blame too much, but I wish Bella didn't insist on abandoning herself to court Edward. As I read the books, I'm looking for every reason to blame Edward. I'm looking in every corner. Don't worry. I'm finding every way that this man is terrible. But it's made harder when half the time Bella saying I'm fine or don't worry about it is followed by I lied. Stop lying. And that's Stephanie Meyer's fault. In my eyes, it's not cute to lie about your opinion unless you have a really good reason. Lying about your opinions and how you feel is no way to build a relationship. And in Bella's case, she was dealing with someone interested in exploiting her tendency to smooth over the truth. He caught on quickly that she would say anything to please him, and he takes that opportunity to overstep his bounds and call all the shots for her life. Maybe she's just being polite. Maybe she's used to just making other people happy. I wish that it wasn't presented as normal. It's not normal. It doesn't have to be normal. You can communicate honestly, and that's a reasonable thing to do. There's a vibe that if you tell Edward your opinion, he'll still be the one making the decisions, and that any outcome comes down to his personal assessment rather than what all parties want. That's the vibe that leads to the sincerely bizarre BDSM in Fifty Shades of Grey, even though at a glance it seems like an unlikely spinoff from the virginal innocence of Miss Swan and her simp boyfriend. According to an essay by Terry Waddell called Consensual and Non-Consensual Sucking about vampire transitional phenomena, vampires have complicated issue of consent in that they are all narcissistic enough to see their victim as only an extension of themselves. In many cases, and certainly the case in Twilight, the victim is also a lover who's meant to believe they're in a half-decent contemporary relationship. Bella considers herself a feminist, and she believes she's doing everything she can to be a feminist in her relationship but she's actually caught in an ancient pattern of fatal seduction because Edward is a vampire. Waddell argues in the essay that even though vampire stories have been updated to include seemingly progressive habits like sucking only animal blood, for example, the very nature of a vampire includes stunted ego development that leads to violation of consent in their victim. Part of vampire's whole MO is to create people that closely resemble them, When Edward turns Bella into a vampire, she's finalized her codependence by coming to more closely resemble Edward in her permanent nature. There's no deviating from this track now that she's become a vampire. It's unfortunately also the only way she can get even footing with him is to become what he is. There was never a chance for him to become what she was. There's a lot of questions going back and forth on who's more codependent in my mind while I read, but the fact that she has to change to meet his standards rather than the other way around, which is literally impossible in the case of vampires, it's disappointing. It has to go that direction. Worse, Edward is now her creator, and in a way, is kind of like a mother figure. I know that sounds twisted, but he ends up filling this mother role, and at the same time, is continuing to operate as Baby. Like, he needs to mindlessly fulfill physical needs. If he gets too thirsty, he freaks out and rages. But he also is, like, the one responsible for Bella's change and bringing her onto this planet. So, refer back to the parentification of Bella Swan. She's got some issues with her mother that she needs to work through, and she ends up with Edward Cullen filling the role of mother swan it doesn't matter really that edward's technically cooler than like count dracula ever was because he drives a fast car and wears tight sweaters he's still the same two-dimensional abuser that every other vampire is that's the biggest thing i've learned so far to circle back to consent it is clear that bella wants to become a vampire she said it a hundred times before edward actually turns her Her rationale is a bit muddied because we already know as readers that a vampire, Edward, is using Bella to satisfy some thirst, even if we don't know the extent of the objectification of his beloved Bella playing out as a trope of vampire narcissism. Edward is a parasite who lacks empathy. He only does what's good for Bella when it perfectly aligns with what's good for him, and I hate that. Did Bella choose to turn into a vampire at the moment when she finally gets a brutal injection from Edward, when she's dying and they had to use CGI to make her look like a skeleton in the movies? Absolutely not. She was unconscious and battered, easily the most frightening scene of the whole series. We also know from the first Twilight book, from New Moon, from Eclipse, from Breaking Dawn, that Edward's opinion on when and if Bella should change is the only thing he was considering when he finally subjugated her to the turmoil and pain of the change. He did not care what her opinion was, and he never asked, and he almost even let her change in the first book without asking her because he thinks as a man that's his job. And because of the comparison to life and death, we know that is a man thing and not a vampire thing as a vampire. Edward needs Bella to keep his secrets and occasionally lie on his behalf in order to survive. Bella needs no such thing from Edward. He only keeps the upper hand in the power dynamic by being physically intimidating and making her feel crazy. We already know that Edward gaslights, especially in that first book. He also trivializes Bella's emotions and dehumanizes her when when he needs attention. So here's question number three. Do the characters react lovingly when met with complex emotions of their partner? Or more simply, as Hathaway once asked, what is love? Does it include hurt? Does it include emotions? Man, most adults don't know how to answer this question, but in the case of Edward and Bella, love is just lust without action, and I think that's a dangerous simplification when it comes to vampires who are out there setting literal thirst traps. I don't say this enough, and I clearly have an agenda, but I not all relationships are the same, I know. Maybe some relationships are devoid of emotional connection, but this relationship, with all its big talk about spending eternity together and potentially giving up your soul and drinking blood at this level of intensity, someone's going to break if there isn't also a strong foundation of trust and support. It is possible. It is possible, I think, for a vampire to, you know, break the norm and have a decent, loving relationship. But it is not with this same stunted ego that Edward has. That's not going to work. To Edward, love is only about the support he can get from Bella and what he can take from Bella. I don't even feel like trying to put a gentle edge on this anymore. It's not a cute relationship and it isn't anything to aspire to. And it isn't even romance. It's about delayed gratification and seeing how long someone can hold out until they break and give you what you want. Edward gives just enough of himself to unfairly ask for something in return. The most humanizing aspect of him that he secretly hates himself, despite his outward charm and stunning good looks, is still part of the narcissistic characterization He feels threatened by his own limp existence, where he can't just, like, go to school, eat a pizza, and join a punk band. The root of his discomfort may be natural, but it's by no means cute or excusable. He's mad because he doesn't get what he wants as often as he wants it, and he goes into a rage when the object he controls, Bella, is threatened in any way. Because he cares about the thing that is his, not because he cares about Bella as a person. Edward makes life extra hard for himself by mostly choosing not to speak to Bella about his feelings. We know from things I've already gone over that Stephanie Meyer doesn't believe boys talk about their feelings. Unlike Beau Swan, Edward has Alice to talk to. Alice sees Edward's life happening before he does, and she doesn't need to wait until a convenient moment to ask him about it. Believe it or not, leaving Bella out of the conversation and relying instead on, like, malleable predictions in Alice's little head, it causes Edward a lot of problems. For example, here's this passage from Midnight Sun. So, reminder, in Midnight Sun, Edward is watching Alice's future predictions about Bella like a TV screen, trying to figure out what he can do, what he can change in himself to save Bella from becoming a vampire. He doesn't actually make any mental changes, and that's why the future never changes in Alice's head. Just want to point that out. He gets frustrated over and over that the future doesn't change and that he doesn't seem to be able to save Bella from her fate as a vampire. However, he makes no changes in himself. That's what he had to do. Alice's visions and the way they work are explained in detail throughout the entire saga. That's how they work. If he changes his mind, it'll be all right, but he doesn't. Great. So here's this passage from Midnight Sun. Did I love her? I did not think so. Not yet. Alice's glimpses of that future had stayed with me, though, and I could see how easy it would be to fall into loving Bella. It would be exactly like falling, effortless. Not letting myself fall for her was the opposite of falling. It was pulling myself up a cliff face, hand over hand, the task as grueling as if I had no more than mortal strength. More than a month passed, and every day it got harder. That made no sense to me. I kept waiting to get over it, to have the struggle become easier, at least level off. This must be what Alice had meant when she predicted that I would not be able to stay away from the girl. She had seen the escalation of pain. But I could handle pain. I would not destroy Bella's future. Later on in Midnight Sun, Edward says, She deserved happiness and love with whomever she chose. And he didn't mean himself. He meant Mike Newton... Who's some dude who like follows her around the halls for the first book? She never is interested in him. Not for a second. He's interested in her, but she is never for one second interested in him. There's no way she portrayed that to Edward. There's like I cannot even it's an insult to say like she should end up with Mike Newton. He doesn't get to make that call. That's disgusting. And then later, later, Edward says, I could no longer pretend that I was only in danger of loving this girl. After all, it didn't really matter if I left because Bella could never see me the way I wished she would. Never see me as someone worthy of love. Could a dead, frozen heart break? It felt as though mine would. Alright, a few things are going on here. Edward thinks love is one sided. To answer the question, what is love, or how is love portrayed in the Twilight Saga, we have to consider that one of our key players ruins his own relationship by choosing to not involve a girl he was hopelessly in love with with him. He instead ignores her, glowers at her, stalks her, and assumes her opinions even when she flat out tells him the opposite of what he's assuming about her. If this is how love is built, maintaining it has got to be an enormous task. This brings me to question four Does anyone in the book threaten suicide to get their way this is huge and if it happens in a book you're reading if it happens in a young adult novel specifically i almost feel like there should be a flag on it that says have a conversation about this book i already said that someone will break if this level of intensity doesn't have a strong foundation like if you believe your only purpose for living is to be with bella swan then naturally the disappearance of bella is the same as the disappearance of your will to live a plus b equals c you know Regardless, that is not a pressure that is appropriate for one person in a relationship to put on another. I know that now, of course, but when I first read the books, I completely romanticized everything Edward and Bella did. By the Edward and Bella standard, saying you'll kill yourself if your relationship ends is one of the most romantic things a person can do. It symbolizes the intensity of the relationship, and we already know that death is the sincerest form of commitment. That's... The gothic romance. That is Romeo and Juliet. That's what it is. In New Moon, Edward both calls Bella melodramatic for expressing herself on her birthday, and he goes on a theatrical voyage to Italy to sparkle in front of mobs of humans and get himself murdered in an overdone scene of thespian conditions, committing what is basically suicide by cop, but instead is suicide by glamorous vampire government. He's a hypocrite. It's also a misunderstanding that leads him to this potential suicide moment. He, being the selfish POS that he undeniably is, opts into revealing vampire kind to hordes of humans because he thinks Bella is dead and he can't live without her. He's been alluding to this suicide attempt for hundreds of pages by the time he does it. It's almost like he has depression that needs to be dealt with regardless of Bella's role in his life, and he's using his hatred of his condition to manipulate Bella into doing what he wants. Spoiler alert for real life, if someone is legitimately suicidal... When depression is leveraged as a way to get your romantic partner to stay with you, it's manipulation. Check yourself. Don't date a vampire, and maybe date a vampire if he's hot, and then you can date him, but don't actually commit to him because it's not worth it. Becoming a vampire might be cool. It certainly makes a great story. But even if it's worth it to you, you're setting a terrible example for children who might read about it later in a young adult novel. Plus, you're better than that. You're better than the danger that you're in by dating a vampire and committing to him. And you're better than the double standards you'll be exposed to. The last question that I can guarantee nobody's asking, because nobody even knows that Stephanie Meyer wrote this book so many damn times. No one knows that Life and Death, the gender swap Twilight, exists. Everybody I've talked to does not know about this book. Is there a sexual double standard for behavior for boys and girls in the book you're reading. As always, we've started with the human girl example in Bella, in the vampire boy example in Edward, and found Mormonesque purity in both. Then Beau Swan, the underground snake of Stephanie Meyer's unsettling understanding of gender, comes in and ruins all of my theories about pushing an agenda of abstinence. Here it is. Bella and Edward go out to dinner in Port Angeles after he saves her from those roaming criminals. Bella gets home, calls Jessica right away, explains what happens. Jessica's disappointed that it isn't juicier or gossip, but she's used to the ultra-vanilla, untouchable aspect of the gorgeous Edward Cullen. And her surprise is more about Edward spending even a single moment with Bella rather than about Bella and Edward not kissing or anything. Fast forward 10 years, Stephanie Meyer is writing the story of Bo, Swan, and Edith Cullen. Bo doesn't place the same phone call to his friend to fill in the dinner date details. As we've already established, he and his friends aren't tight like that. Edith tips off Bo in the morning that Jeremy is going to ask him what base they got to on their date. This is a clear deviation from any conversation Bella has. And I can't imagine the Bella and Edward romance story with all their flowery language ever including mention of what base they got to. Keep that in mind. When Bo gets to class, Jeremy's like, Hey, Bo, that's crazy. You spent the night with Edith Cohen. Bo clarifies that he was home by 8 o'clock and also clarifies that it's weird for Jeremy to assume they spent the night together just because he like saw the two of them the night before and because then Edith gave him a ride in the morning, so it's like weird that Jeremy thought. Jeremy and Bo have a back and forth because Jeremy really can't believe that Bo didn't get laid. And he says, Really? Please tell me you at least made out with her anything. Bo scowls and says no. He keeps denying it because it's true that nothing happened. Then Jeremy makes a disgusted face and says, that is hands down the most disappointing story I have ever heard in my entire life. I take back everything I said about your game. Obviously, it's just some pity thing. And then he doesn't even drop it. He goes on and says, maybe I should try to look more pathetic if that's what Edith is into. It won't take her long to get bored with you, I bet. (laughs) After he's done laying into Bo, and Bo's just, like, kind of going along with it, and it seems like, alright, maybe if I just go along with it, he'll shut up. (laughs) After he's done laying into Bo, he insults Edith with, you know what, though? I think I'd rather be with a normal girl. This is Jeremy talking. Jeremy is Jessica. Jessica is a notoriously shallow character. She's played by Anna Kendrick in the movies. She certainly has moments where she comes off mean but she never outright antagonizes Bella the way Jeremy does to Beau. She's curious about the date with Edward, but she has a positive reaction to everything Edward said and did, even though she was disappointed that Edward hadn't kissed Bella. She certainly doesn't act threatened by Bella spending time with Edward. Jeremy, on the other hand, still isn't finished. To round off his spurt of dangerously toxic masculinity, he suspiciously asks Beau who he'll be sitting with at lunch. The book says, Obviously, he thought, I'd be eager to show off, to sell Edith out to make myself look cooler. After all, Jeremy and I had been friends for a little while. Guys told each other this kind of stuff. It was probably part of the man code thing I'd invented. He assumed my loyalty would be with him, but now he knew he was wrong. Then, a couple paragraphs down, Jeremy has an outburst of anger and says loudly, Seriously, what the hell, when Bo chooses to eat lunch with Edith? stephanie meyer didn't want to ruin her novel and i respect her for that she didn't want to include the phrase but i'll call it what it is jeremy is talking about bros before hoes jeremy feels entitled to bros before hoes and his fervent belief that his male friendships should unquestionably dominate any relationship with a woman is just really messing him up on the day that beau and edith eat together maybe it's just the pages I follow on Instagram, but I think in the time since Twilight, there's been an uptick in women supporting other women and even some silly spin-off phrases like chicks before dicks and uteruses before deuteruses, which are both like silly and sort of ignorant of trans people and don't really cover it. But regardless, in the Stephanie Meyer worldview, men owe each other a loyalty that women do not. She also revealed in this side character of this side book that everyone isn't as chaste and pure as the driven snow that she's completely aware of and willing to acknowledge the sexual expectations of teenagers just not when the teenager is a girl or the teenager was born in the same year that automobiles first got license plates it's all a bit tongue-in-cheek I don't actually fault anybody for letting me read Twilight or for not scrutinizing it more on a cultural level in 2005. I put all the questions I went through here in the show notes so you can try to apply them to other romance novels if you so desire. The thing is, this level of critical scrutiny can really take the fun out of reading. For me, it puts the fun into it. It's not like I believe Twilight should be banned from middle schools or that Stephanie Meyer's property should be burned down using copies of Twilight as kindling. I just wish there would have been more questions asked and conversations had. When it comes to kids reading romance novels, it's probably tricky regardless. Books and shows can be an excellent gateway into having conversations about healthy relationships, and that's all I mean by making this list. I don't feel like I was put in danger because I read these books, but sex isn't the scariest thing that can show up in a novel. Arguably, I may have been better off reading about a healthy relationship where people also happened to get physically intimate than reading a book without physical intimacy that was riddled with unaddressed red flags. We'll never know. This podcast was written, recorded, and edited by me Susie shelton the theme music is by alexis lopez if you enjoyed this episode please leave a review share with your friends and consider tuning in to the sister podcast Nurmer nermer or following Nurmer nermer on instagram you can dm any feedback or questions to that account and i'll get back to you any sources and all sources used for this episode are in the description If you or somebody you know has experienced sexual assault, please know that you are not alone. The number for the National Sexual Assault Hotline is 1-800-656-4673. It is confidential and available 24 hours a day. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline phone number is 800-273-8255. Special thanks to you for listening to this podcast. Special thanks to my coworker for letting me talk about Edward Cullen all the live long day. And extra special thanks to Stephanie Meyer for ruining my life.